Book Two, Part One of Pierre or the Ambiguities by Herman Melville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Nadu, Chiang Mai, Thailand. Book Two Love, Delight, and Alarm. Chapter One. On the previous evening, Pierre had arranged with Lucy the plan of a long winding ride among the hills which stretched around to the southward from the wide plains of Saddle Meadows. Though the vehicle was a sexagenarian, the animals that drew it were but six-year colts. The old Phaeton had outlasted several generations of its drawers. Pierre rolled beneath the village elms in billowy style, and soon drew up before the white cottage door. Flinging his reins upon the ground, he entered the house. The two colts were his particular and confidential friends, born on the same land with him, and fed with the same corn, which, in the form of Indian cakes, Pierre himself was often wont to eat for breakfast. The same fountain that by one branch supplied the stables with water, by another supplied Pierre's pitcher. They were a sort of family cousins to Pierre, those horses, and they were splendid young cousins, very showy in their redundant manes and mighty paces, but not all vain or arrogant. They acknowledged Pierre as the undoubted head of the house of Glendening. They well knew that they were but an inferior and subordinate branch of the Glendenings, bound in perpetual feudal fealty to its headmost representative. Therefore, these young cousins never permitted themselves to run from Pierre. They were impatient in their paces, but very patient in the halt. They were full of good humor, too, and kind as kittens. Bless me, how can you let them stand all alone that way, Pierre? cried Lucy, as she and Pierre stepped forth from the cottage door. Pierre laden with shawls, parasol, reticule, and a small hamper. Wait a bit, cried Pierre, dropping his load. I will show you what my colts are. So saying, he spoke to them mildly, and went close up to them and patted them. The colts neighed, the nigh colt neighing, a little jealousy, as if Pierre had not patted impartially. Then with a low, long, almost inaudible whistle, Pierre got between the colts, among the harness, whereat Lucy started and uttered a faint cry, but Pierre told her to keep perfectly quiet, for there was not the least danger in the world. And Lucy did keep quiet, for somehow, though she always started when Pierre seemed in the slightest jeopardy, yet at the bottom she rather cherished the notion that Pierre bore a charmed life, and by no earthly possibility could die from her, or experience any harm when she was within a thousand leagues. Pierre, still between the horses, now stepped upon the pole of the Phaeton, then stepping down, indefinitely disappeared, or became partially obscured among the living colonnade of the horse's eight slender and glossy legs. He entered the colonnade one way, and after a variety of meanderings, came out another way, during all of which equestrian performance the two colts kept gaily neighing, and good-humouredly 
moving their heads perpendicularly up and down, and sometimes turning them sideways towards Lucy, as much as to say, We understand, young master, we understand him, miss. Never fear, pretty lady. Why, bless your delicious little heart. We played with Pierre before you ever did. Are you afraid of their running away now, Lucy? said Pierre, returning to her. Not much, Pierre, the, su the superb fellows. Why, Pierre, they have made an officer of you. Look! And she pointed to two foam flakes, epilating his shoulders. Bravissimo again. I called you my recruit when you left my window this morning, and here you are promoted. Very prettily conceited, Lucy. But see, you don't admire their coats. They wear nothing but the finest Genoa velvet, Lucy. See, did you ever see such well-groomed horses? Never. Then what say you to have them for my groomsmen, Lucy? Glorious groomsmen they would make, I declare. They should have a thousand L's of white favors all over their manes and tails, and when they draw us to church, they would be still all the time scattering white favors from their mouths, just as they did here on me. Upon my soul they shall be my groomsmen, Lucy. Stately stags, playful dogs, heroes, Lucy. We shall have no marriage bells. They shall neigh for us, Lucy. We shall be wedded to the martial sound of Job's trumpeteers, Lucy. Hark, they are neighing now to think of it. Neighing at your lyrics, Pierre. Come, let us be off. Here, the shawl, the parasol, the basket. What are you looking at them so for? I was thinking, Lucy, of the sad state I am in. Not six months ago, I saw a poor, affianced fellow, an old comrade of mine, trudging along with this Lucy Tartan, a hillock of bundles under either arm, and I said to myself, There goes a sumpter now, poor devil, he's a lover. And now look at me. Well, life's a burden, they say. Why not be burdened cheerily? But look ye, Lucy, I am going to enter a formal declaration and protest before matters go further with us. When we are married, I am not to carry any bundles, unless in cases of real need. And what is more, when there are any of your young lady acquaintances in sight, I am not to be unnecessarily called upon to back up and load for their particular edification. Now I am really vexed with you, Pierre. That is the first ill-natured innuendo I ever heard from you. Are there any of my young lady acquaintances in sight now, I should like to know? Six of them, right over the way, said Pierre. But they keep behind the curtains. I never trust your solitary village streets, Lucy. Sharpshooters behind every clapboard, Lucy. Pray then, dear Pierre. Do let us be off. Chapter 2 While Pierre and Lucy are now rolling along under the elms, let it be said who Lucy Tartan was. It is needless to say that she was a beauty, because chestnut-haired, bright-cheeked youths like Pierre Glendening seldom fall in love with any but a beauty. And in the times to come, there must be, as in the present times, and in times gone by, some splendid man, 
and some transcendent women, and how can they ever be, unless always, throughout all time, here and there, a handsome youth weds with a handsome maid. But though owing to the above-named provisions of dame nature, there always will be beautiful women in the world, yet the world will never see another Lucy Tartan. Her cheeks were tinted with the most delicate white and red, the white predominating. Her eyes some god brought down from heaven. Her hair was Danae's, spangled with Jove's shower. Her teeth were dived for in the Persian sea. If long wont to fix his glance on those who, trudging through the humbler walks of life, and whom unequal toil and poverty deform, if that man shall haply view some fair and gracious daughter of the gods, who from unknown climes of loveliness and affluence comes floating into sight, all symmetry and radiance, how shall he be transported that in a world so full of vice and misery as ours, there should yet shine forth this, in this visible semblance of the heavens, for a lovely woman is not entirely of this earth. Her own sex regard her not as such. A crowd of women eye a transcendent beauty entering a room, much as though a bird from Arabia had lightened on the window-sill. Say what you will, their jealousy, if any, is but an afterbirth to their open admiration. Do men envy the gods? And shall women envy the goddesses? A beautiful woman is born queen of men and women both, as Mary Stuart was born queen of Scots, whether men or women. All mankind are her Scots. Her leal clans are numbered by the nations. A true gentleman in Kentucky would cheerfully die for a beautiful woman in Hindustan, though he never saw her. Yea, count down his heart and death drops for her, and go to Pluto, that she might go to paradise. He would turn Turk before he would disown an allegiance hereditary to all gentlemen, from the hour their grand master, Adam, first knelt to Eve. A plain-faced queen of Spain dwells not in half the glory a beautiful milliner does. Her soldiers can break heads, but her highness cannot crack a heart, and the beautiful milliner might string hearts for necklaces. Undoubtedly, beauty made the first queen. If ever again the succession to the German Empire should be contested, and one poor lame lawyer should present the claims of the first excellingly beautiful women he chanced to see, she would thereupon be unanimously elected Empress of the Holy Roman German Empire. That is to say, if all the Germans were true, free-hearted and magnanimous gentlemen, at all capable of appreciating so immense an honor. It is nonsense to talk of France at the seat of all civility. Did not those French heathen have a Salique law? Three of the most bewitching creatures, immortal flowers of the line of Valois, were excluded from the French throne by that infamous provision. France, indeed, this Catholic millions still worship Mary, Queen of Heaven, and for ten generations 
refused cap and knee to many angel marys rightful queens of france here is cause for universal war see how vilely nations as well as men assume and wear unchallenged the choicest titles however without merit the americans and not the french are the world's models of chivalry arsalique law provides that universal homage shall be paid all beautiful women no man's most solid rights shall weigh against her airiest whims if you buy the best seat in the coach to go and consult a doctor on a matter of life and death you shall cheerfully abdicate that best seat and limp away on foot if a pretty woman travelling shake one feather from the stage-house door now since we began by talking of a certain young lady that went out riding with a certain youth and yet find ourselves after leading such a merry dance fast by a stage-house window this may seem rather irregular sort of riding but whither indeed should lucy tartan conduct us but among mighty queens and all other creatures of high degree and finally set us roaming to see whether the wide world can match so fine a wonder by immemorial usage am i not bound to celebrate this lucy tartan who shall stay me is she not my hero's own affianced what can be gainsaid where underneath the tester of the night sleeps such another yet how would lucy tartan shrink from all this noise and clatter she is bragged of but not brags thus far she hath floated as stilly through this life as thistle down floats over meadows noiseless she except with pierre and even with him she lives through many a panting hush oh those love pauses that they know how ominous of their future for pauses precede the earthquake and every other terrible commotion but blue be their sky awhile and lightsome all their chat and frolicsome their humours never shall i get down this vile inventory how if with paper and with pencil i went out into the starry night to inventorize the heavens who shall tell stars as teaspoons who shall put down the charms of lucy tartan upon paper as for the breast her parentage what fortunes she would possess and how many dresses in her wardrobe and how many rings upon her fingers cheerfully would i let the genealogists tax-gatherers and upholsterers attend to that my proper province is with the angelical part of lucy but as in some quarters there prevails a sort of prejudice against angels who are merely angels and nothing more therefore i shall martyrize myself by letting such gentlemen and ladies into some details of lucy tartan's history she was the daughter of an early and most cherished friend of pierre's father but that father was now dead and she resided an only daughter with her mother in a very fine house in the city but though her home was in the city her heart was twice a year in the country she did not at all love the city and its empty heartless ceremonial ways 
It was very strange, but most eloquently significant of her own natural angelhood that, though born among brick and mortar in a seaport, she still pined for unbaked earth and inland grass. So the sweet linnet, though born inside of wires in a lady's chamber on the ocean coast, and ignorant all its life of any other spot, yet when springtime comes, it is seized with flutterings and vague impatiences. It cannot eat or drink for these wild longings. Though unlearned by any experience, still the inspired linnet divinely knows that the inland migrating time has come. And just so, with Lucy in her first longings for the verdure, every spring those wild flutterings shook her. Every spring the sweet linnet girl did migrate inland. O oh God grant that those other and long after nameless flutterings of her inmost soul, when all life was become weary to her, God grant that those deeper flutterings in her were equally significant of her final heavenly migration from this heavenly earth. It was fortunate for Lucy that her aunt Lanolin, a pensive, childless, white-turbaned widow, possessed and occupied a pretty cottage in the village of Saddle Meadows. And still more fortunate that this excellent old aunt was very partial to her, and always felt a quiet delight in having Lucy near her. So Aunt Lanolin's cottage, in effect, was Lucy's. And now, for some years past, she had annually spent several months at Saddle Meadows, and it was among the pure and soft incitements of the country that Pierre first had felt towards Lucy, the dear passion which now made him wholly hers. Lucy had two brothers, one her senior by three years, and the other her junior by two. But these young men were officers in the navy, and so they did not permanently live with Lucy and her mother. Mrs. Tartan was mistress of an ample fortune. She was, moreover, perfectly aware that such was the fact, and was somewhat inclined to force it upon the notice of other people, nowise interested in the matter. In other words, Mrs. Tartan, instead of being daughter-proud, for which she had infinite reason, was a little inclined to being purse-proud, for which she had not the slightest reason. Seeing that the great Mogul probably possessed a larger fortune than she, not to speak of the Shah of Persia and Baron Rothschild, and a thousand other millionaires, whereas the Grand Turk and all their other majesties of Europe, Asia, and Africa to boot, could not in all their joint dominions boast so sweet a girl as Lucy. Nevertheless, Mrs. Tartan was an excellent sort of lady, as this ladylike world goes. She subscribed to charities, and owned five pews in as many churches, and went about trying to promote the general felicity of the world by making all the handsome young people of her acquaintance marry one another. In other words, she was a matchmaker. Not a Lucifer matchmaker, though. To tell the truth, she may have kindled the matrimonial blues in certain dissatisfied gentlemen's breasts, 
who had been wedded under her particular auspices, and by her particular advice. Rumors said, but rumors always fibbing, that there was a secret society of dissatisfied young husbands, who were at the pains of privately circulating handbills among all unmarried young strangers, warning them against the insidious approaches of Mrs. Tartan, and for reference named themselves in cipher. But this could not have been true, for flushed with a thousand matches, burning blue or bright, it made little matter. Mrs. Tartan sailed the seas of fashion, causing all topsails to lower to her, and towing flotillas of young ladies, for all of whom she was bound to find the finest husband harbors in the world. But does not matchmaking, like charity, begin at home? Why is her own daughter Lucy without a mate? But not so fast. Mrs. Tartan, years ago, laid out that sweet program concerning Pierre and Lucy. But in this case, her program happened to coincide, in some degree, with the previous one in heaven, and only for that cause did it come to pass, that Pierre Glendening was the proud elect of Lucy Tartan. Besides, this being a thing so nearly affected herself, Mrs. Tartan had, for the most part, been rather circumspect and cautious in all her maneuverings with Pierre and Lucy. Moreover, the thing demanded no maneuvering at all, the two platonic particles, after roaming in quest of each other, from the time of Saturn and Ops till now, they came together before Mrs. Tartan's own eyes, and what more could Mrs. Tartan do toward making them forever one and indivisible? Once, and only once, had a dim suspicion passed through Pierre's mind that Mrs. Tartan was a lady thimble-rigger, and slyly rolled the pea. In their less mature acquaintance, he was breakfasting with Lucy and her mother in the city, and the first cup of coffee had been poured out by Mrs. Tartan, when she declared she smelt matches burning somewhere in the house, and she must see them extinguished. So banning all pursuit, she rose to seek for the burning matches, leaving the pair alone to interchange the civilities of the coffee and finally sent word to them from above the stairs that the matches, or something else, had given her a headache, and begged Lucy to send her up some toast and tea, and she would breakfast in her own chamber that morning. Upon this, Pierre looked from Lucy to his boots, and as he lifted his eyes again, saw Anacreon on the sofa on one side of him, and Moore's Melodies on the other, and some honey on the table, and a bit of white satin on the floor, and a sort of bride's veil on the chandelier. Never mind, though, thought Pierre, fixing his gaze on Lucy. I'm entirely willing to be caught when the bait is set in paradise, and the bait is such an angel. Again, he glanced at Lucy, and saw a look of infinite subdued vexation, and some unwanted pallor on her cheek. Then willingly he would have kissed the delicious bait, and so gently hated to be tasted in the trap. But glancing round again, and seeing that the music, which Mrs. Tartan, under the pretense of putting in order, had been adjusting upon the piano, seeing that this music was now 
in a vertical pile against the wall, with Love Was Once a Little Boy for the outermost and only visible sheet, and thinking this to be a remarkable coincidence under the circumstances, Pierre could not refrain from a humorous smile, though it was a very gentle one, and immediately repented of, especially as Lucy seeing and interpreting it immediately arose with an unaccountable, indignant, angelical, adorable, and all-persuasive. Mr. Glendening, utterly confounded in him the slightest germ of suspicion as to Lucy's collusion in her mother's imagined artifices. Indeed, Mrs. Tartan's having anything whatever to do, or hint, or finesse in this matter of the loves of Pierre and Lucy, was nothing less than immensely gratuitous and sacrilegious. Would Mrs. Tartan doctor lilies when they blow? Would Mrs. Tartan set about matchmaking between the steel and the magnet? Preposterous Mrs. Tartan! But this whole world is a preposterous one, with many preposterous people in it, chief among whom was Mrs. Tartan, matchmaker to the nation. This conduct of Mrs. Tartan was the more absurd, seeing that she could not but know that Mrs. Glendening desired the thing. And was not Lucy wealthy? Going to be, that is, very wealthy, when her mother died. Sad thought that for Mrs. Tartan. And was not her husband's family of the best? And had not Lucy's father been a bosom friend of Pierre's father? And though Lucy might be matched to some one man, where among women was the match for Lucy. Exceedingly preposterous, Mrs. Tartan. But when a lady like Mrs. Tartan has nothing positive and useful to do, then she will do just such preposterous things as Mrs. Tartan did. Well, time went on, and Pierre loved Lucy, and Lucy Pierre, till at last the two young naval gentlemen, her brothers, happened to arrive in Mrs. Tartan's drawing-room, from their first cruise, a three years one trip to the Mediterranean. They rather stared at Pierre, finding him on the sofa, and Lucy not very remote. Pray, be seated, gentlemen, said Pierre. Plenty of room. My darling brothers, cried Lucy, embracing them. My darling brothers and sisters, cried Pierre, folding them together. Pray, hold off, sir, said the elder brother, who had served as a past midshipman for the last two weeks. The younger brother retreated a little, and clapped his hand upon his dirk, saying, Sir, we are from the Mediterranean. Sir, permit to say, this is decidedly improper. Who may you be, sir? I can't explain for joy, cried Pierre, hilariously embracing them all again. Most extraordinary, cried the older brother, extricating his shirt-collar from the embrace and pulling it up vehemently. Draw, cried the younger, intrepidly. Peace, foolish fellows, cried Lucy. This is your old playfellow, Pierre Glendening. Pierre? Why, Pierre, cried the lads, a hug all round again. You've grown a fathom. Who would have known you? But then, Lucy, I say, Lucy, what business have you here in this, 
a, a hugging match, I should call it. Oh, Lucy don't mean anything, cried Pierre. Come, one more all around. So they all embraced again, and that evening it was publicly known that Pierre was to wed with Lucy. Whereupon the young officers took it upon themselves to think, though they by no means presumed to breathe it, that they had authoritatively, though indirectly, accelerated a before ambiguous and highly incommendable state of affairs between the now affianced lovers. Chapter 3 In the fine old robust times of Pierre's grandfather, an American gentleman of substantial person and fortune, spent his time in a somewhat different style from the greenhouse gentleman of the present day. The grandfather of Pierre measured six feet four inches in height. During a fire in the old manorial mansion, with one dash of his foot he had smitten down an oaken door to admit the buckets of his negro slaves. Pierre had often tried on his military vest, which still remained an heirloom at Saddle Meadows and found the pockets below his knees, and plenty additional room for a fair-sized quarter-cask within its buttoned girth. In a night scuffle in the wilderness before the Revolutionary War, he had annihilated two Indian savages by making reciprocal bludgeons of their heads. And all this was done by the mildest-hearted and most blue-eyed gentleman in the world, who, according to the patriarchal fashion of those days, was a gentle, white-haired worshipper of all the household gods, the gentlest husband and the gentlest father, the kindest of masters to his slaves, of the most wonderful unruffledness of temper, a serene smoker of his after-dinner pipe, a forgiver of many injuries, a sweet-hearted, charitable Christian, in fine, a pure, cheerful, childlike, blue-eyed, divine old man, in whose meek, majestic soul the lion and the lamb embraced, fit image of his God. Never could Pierre look upon his fine military portrait without an infinite and mournful longing to meet his living aspect in real life. The majestic sweetness of this portrait was truly wonderful in its effects upon any sensitive and generous-minded young observer. For such, that portrait possessed the heavenly persuasiveness of angelic speech. A glorious gospel framed and hung above the wall, and declaring to all people, as from the mount, that man is a noble, godlike being full of choicest juices, made up of strength and beauty. Now, this grand old Pierre Glendening was a great lover of horses, but not in the modern sense, for he was no jockey. One of his most intimate friends of the masculine gender was a huge, proud, gray horse, of a surprising reserve of manner, his saddle-beast. He had his horse's mangers carved like old trenchers, out of solid maple logs. The key of the corn bin hung in his library, and no one grained his steeds but himself. 
unless his absence from home promoted Moyer, an incorruptible and most punctual old black, to that honourable office. He said that no man loved his horses unless his own hands grained them. Every Christmas he gave them brimming measures. I keep Christmas with my horses, said Grand Old Pierre. The Grand Old Pierre always rose at sunrise, washed his face and chest in the open air, and then, returning to his closet, and being completely arrayed at last, stepped forth to make a ceremonious call at his stables, to bid his very honourable friends there a very good and joyful morning. Woe to Crance, Kit, Dow, or any other of his stable slaves, if grand old Pierre found one horse unblanketed, or one weed among the hay that filled their rack. Not that he ever had Crance, Kit, Dow, or any of them flogged, a thing unknown in that patriarchal time and country. But he would refuse to say that his wanted pleasant word to them. And that was very bitter to them, for Krantz, Kit, Dow, and all of them loved grand old Pierre, and his shepherds loved old Abraham. What decorous, lordly, grey-haired steed is this? What old Chaldean rides abroad? "'Tis grand old Pierre, who, every morning before he eats, "'goes out promenading with his saddle-beast, "'nor mounts him without first asking leave. "'But time glides on, and grand old Pierre grows old. "'His life's gro glorious grape now swells with fatness. "'He has not the conscience to saddle his majestic beast "'with such a mighty load of manliness. "'Besides, the noble beast himself is growing old, and has a touching look of meditativeness in his large, attentive eyes. Leg of man, swears grand old Pierre, shall never more bestride my steed. No more shall harness touch him. Then every spring he sowed a field with clover for his steed, and at midsummer sorted all his meadow grasses, for the choicest hay to winter him, and had his destined grain thrashed out with a flail, whose handle had once borne a flag in brisk battle, into which the same old steed had pranced with grand old Pierre, one waving mane, one waving sword. Now needs must grand old Pierre take a morning drive. He rides no more with that grey old steed, he has a phaeton built, fit for a vast general, in whose sash three common men might hide. Doubled, trebled, are the huge S-shaped leather springs. The wheels seem stolen from some mill. The canopied seat is like a testered bed. From beneath the old archway, not one horse, but two, every morning, now draw forth old Pierre as the Chinese draw their fat god Josh, once every year from out his fame. But time glides on, and a morning comes when the Phaeton emerges not, but all the yards and courts are full. Helmets line the ways, sword points strike the stone steps of the porch, muskets ring upon the stairs, 
and mournful martial melodies are heard in all the halls. Grand old Pierre is dead, and like a hero of old battles, he dies on the eve of another war, ere wheeling to fire on the foe, his platoons fire over their old commander's grave. In A.D. 1812 died grand old Pierre. The drum that beat in brass his funeral march was a British kettle drum that had once helped beat the vainglorious march for the 30,000 predestined prisoners led into sure captivity by that bragging boy, Burgoyne. Next day, the old grey steed turned from his grain, turned round, and vainly whinnied in his stall. By gracious Moyer's hand, he refuses to be patted now, plain as horse can speak. The old grey steed says, I smell not the wanted hand. Where is grand old Pierre? Grain me not, and groom me not. Where is grand old Pierre? He sleeps not far from his master now, beneath the field he cropped. He has softly lain him down. And long ere this, grand old Pierre and steed have passed through that grass to glory. But his phaeton, like his plumed hearse, outlives the noble load it bore, and the dark bay steeds that drew grand old Pierre alive, and by his testament drew him dead, and followed the lordly lead of the lead gray horse. Those dark bay steeds are still extant, not in themselves or in their issue, but in the two descendant stallions of their own breed. For on the lands of Saddle Meadows, man and horse are both hereditary, and this bright morning, Pierre Glendening, grandson of grand old Pierre, now drives forth with Lucy Tartan, seated where his own ancestor had sat, and reigning steeds whose great-great-great-grandfathers grand old Pierre had reigned before. How proud felt Pierre! In fancy's eye he saw the horse-ghosts a tandem in the van, these are but wheelers, cried young Pierre. The leaders are the generations. End of Book Two, Part One